You are listening to a podcast from Essendon Presbyterian Church in Melbourne, recorded 10 a.m. on March 19, 2023, presented by Reverend Chris Duke. We're going to now turn to Zechariah 9, chapter 9. We're going to read the whole chapter. Let's give attention to God's word. The burden of the word of the Lord against the land of Hadrach and Damascus, its resting place. For the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. Also against Hamath, which borders on it, and against Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. For Tyre built herself a tower, heaped up silver like the dust, and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will cast her out. He will destroy her power in the sea and she will be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and fear. Gaza also shall be very sorrowful. And Ekron, for he dried up her expectation. The king shall perish from Gaza as Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. A mixed race shall settle in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will take away the blood from his mouth and the abominations from between his teeth. But he who remains even shall be for our God and shall be like a leader in Judah and Ekron like a Jebusite. I will camp around my house because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns. No more shall an oppressor pass through them. And now I have seen my eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. For I bent you to my bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made you like the sword of a mighty man. Then the Lord will be seen over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the trumpet and go with whirlwinds from the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them. They shall devour and subdue with sling stones. They shall drink and roar as if with wine. They shall be filled with blood like basins, like the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people, for they shall be like the jewels of a crown, lifted like a banner over his land. For how great is its goodness and how great its beauty. Grain shall make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. May the Lord bless this to us and give us understanding. Would you pray with me? Dear gracious Heavenly Father, as we consider these words, as we consider the words of this oracle, Lord, we pray that you would give us further understanding and encouragement and bless it to us. Lord, open our hearts to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
I'm just wondering if you've ever had the chance to, or the opportunity to um, go to the top of the Eureka Tower on South Bank. No nods, some, some people. Well, if you do go there, I hope you don't fear heights. Uh, when you get to the top of the Eureka Tower, you can see all over Melbourne. You can see uh, the bay, you can see the mountains, you can see the city in all the different directions and you can even see it from the toilets. You have a bird's eye view of the city and you can look out into the Dandenong Ranges. Now, I guess that's the same whenever we climb a mountain. In my younger days, I... I enjoyed climbing to the top of a mountain. Now, we know in Victoria we don't really have mountains, but we do have high places. Uh, near Ballarat, where I, where I live, there's Mount Bunnyong, and, and, and we'd climb up Mount Bunnyong and we'd, we'd go up the fire tower. And on a clear day, you could even see from that vantage point Geelong. Now, I can just imagine the reason why uh, mountain climbers want to climb mountains, uh, such as Mount Everest. Now, Mount Everest is 29,000 feet, uh, added another 32 if you like, or 8,849 metres high. And there you have a bird's eye view, except that I don't think the birds would survive at that height. Um, not many people get to view the world from that height, at least with your feet on the ground. But the perspective you see is a different view from the one that you will get if you're only at base camp, which is 3,000 metres below. Your view from the top will always give you a different perspective. Now, as we turn to Zechariah 9, as we look at this chapter, we also get a new view as we look at this and also the following chapters. In Zechariah's book, this final section, this final section of, the, of Zechariah's book, it is about the revealing of the coming of the king, the coming of the king. And here we find a very clear and exact and a candid picture of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Intermingled with this is this contrasting picture now, when, you, when we did that reading, you're wondering what on earth is all this about? Well, hopefully we'll unpack some of that in a minute. We get this contrasting picture. What we see is the immediate future that's facing God's people, these exilic people return to Judah, and then we see beyond the immediate. We see beyond the immediate to the coming of Christ. And then further beyond, further beyond this, we see we see we come to the worldwide conquest of God in bringing the nations to bend the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in verses 1 to 8, Zechariah describes judgment. He describes judgment of the pagan nations that surround Israel. And whilst there's a message of judgment on, on God's enemies, there's also a promise of grace and deliverance to those who believe in God. And then from verses 11 to 17, our attention is directed uh, further, if you like, into the future. And our attention is directed to God and his covenant people. God's people in this section of the chapter will be his instruments 
in the cosmic conflict that will mark the dawning of the advancement of his kingdom in the world. But more than that, God's people, God's people will be the precious adornments that display his beauty to the world. And then between these two halves, we have these two verses, verses 9 and 10, the bringing of judgment and grace. Wrath and mercy are accomplished with the coming of the king. The coming of the king. It's here that Zechariah turns our attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in verses 1 to 8, God speaks to the nations surrounding Israel and Judah. Here Zechariah speaks an oracle of judgment that begins in the north. Perhaps the next slide for a moment. Or go back to the map. So it begins in the north, it begins with Damascus and then proceeds southward along the coast. Is there a map there? There we are. Okay. And, and so we find in verses 2 to 3 we have Tyre. Uh, Tyre is mentioned. Tyre was an impregnable city of the Phoenicians, the ancient Phoenicians. And now and Tyre had a, a fortress, it was an island fortress in fact, and it was defended by a, a massive 40 metre high wall. And they had grown unbelievably rich on the security of their maritime trade for which they were famous. Verse 3 says, Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But a day is coming, says Zechariah, when a seemingly unbeatable tyre will be thrown down and devoured by fire. And then the other cities will follow. In verse 4 it says, Ashkelon. In verse 5 it says, Gaza and Ekron and Ashdod of the Philistines. Each will face in turn defeat and devastation. Now these cities are not the major enemies of God's people. Assyria, Egypt, Babylon and Persia are not mentioned here. These are not their immediate enemies at all. But these were the pagan nations that fought the Israelites when the Israelites first settled and conquered the land of Canaan. These are the nations that threatened Israel during the reign of the kings. And when Zechariah wrote his prophecy, these nations were like Judah. They were minor vassal kingdoms, vassals to the great Persian, the Mede-Persian Empire, none of which really threatened the people of God anymore. So why does Zechariah pronounce a terrible word of judgment on them? And notice also that the list of nations uh, runs north to south. So what is happening here? Zechariah is predicting a conquest route that is taken by Alexander the Great. Now we've all heard of him. Some 150 years later, Alexander would come down and, and he would especially come down to these areas. One of his first battles was the Battle of Isis uh, in 333 BC. 
And so Alexander moves south along the coastal regions and he destroys all these harbour cities of the Persian Empire. And he does this to prevent reinforcements from being landed at his rear. And so later Alexander would turn his face to the full Persian army on the plains of Gorgamela. At Tyre, Alexander in his march south built a causeway. This causeway was about a half a mile long out to the city, this island city. The fortress of Tyre had stood firm in past years. When Nebuchadnezzar came and conquered this area, it took Nebuchadnezzar 13 years to conquer Tyre, but it fell to Alexander in seven months. And just like dominoes, each city fell, one after the other. And this is the judgment that Zechariah predicts. But the terms in which he predicts the judge, this judgment are this description. It, the, the description is similar to the conquest and settlement of the land of Canaan by the Israelites, Israelites in, earlier, in their earlier days of history. And the fact, uh, that fact gives us clues to the theological significance of this coming Greek invasion. Zechariah really is picturing a new, a new conquest of Canaan. He's rewriting Israel's history. When Joshua led the conquest of Canaan, they never defeated Ashkelon, they never defeated Ashdod or Gaza, but a new history will be written, Zechariah says, instead of failing to drive out the, their enemies and settling down instead, they continued in their idolatries and their immorality, of course, back in Joshua's day, the Lord at last will judge and destroy them. It's going to retell the, the story of, of the conquest, not as a partial invasion ending in compromise, but as a decisive, comprehensive victory where God will hold his enemies to account for their sin. And this is a precursor of a greater victory. It's a greater victory for the people of God that is still to come. A full, complete rewriting of their story, not according to their failure, but according to God's triumph. So this chapter opens with a word of warning, as well as a word of comfort. It's a word of warning for the world. Judgment is coming, so repent. It may not come immediately. When Israel made its first conquest of the land, the conquest stalled and they never drove out the enemies. Judgment upon the pagan nations did not fall at that time, but it will fall. The Lord will execute judgment and he will finish the task. Friends, we may think that we've gotten away with our sins. Psalm 97 depicts the wicked as saying, the Lord does not see. See the arrogance in that statement? The Lord does not see. Nor does the God of Jacob understand. He doesn't know and no one else will ever know. We're secure in our sin, perhaps that's our thinking. And we might come to think that talking about God will amount to nothing. Nothing changes and judgment isn't coming. I can sin and I can get away with it and I can cover it up. Well, Zechariah warns us right here. Judgment may be delayed, but it's coming. It's a word of warning. 
But there's also a word of comfort here, friends. Comfort for God's people. Yes, there are stories of past failure when we look at the story of Israel with their record of incomplete, defective obedience when they first entered to conquer the land. But all will be rewritten one day. It'll be rewritten with a new story. God himself, God himself will do it by other means. He will act for them and he will provide a new narrative in the place of the old narrative. And this is actually pointing us. It's pointing us to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus came, of course, he wrote a new story, did he not? Jesus' obedience now covers our disobedience. And in doing so, he showed us mercy. There's a word of warning, but there's also a word of grace. Unmerited favour, friends. And there's a promise of rescue. There's a promise of deliverance. And we find in verses 7 to 8, there's, a, there's this promise of extraordinary undeserved grace. I will take away the blood from his mouth and the abominations from between his teeth, but he remains, even he shall be for our God and shall be like a leader in Judah, and Ekron like a Jebusite. God will end adultery, idolatry, and vice, not just by way of destruction and judgment, but also by way of rescue and deliverance. Listen to these words of promise. They're extraordinary. But he remains. Even he shall be for our God, and shall be like a leader in Judah and Ekron like a Jebusite. The Jebusites were a people group. They were one of these people groups that Israel failed to conquer when they first entered Canaan. King David finally defeated them and they were assimilated into the people of God. They were assimilated into the people of God. You see what the Lord is saying? is that not everyone will face destruction. Some who deserve to be destroyed will receive deliverance and rescue. Not everyone will be judged. Some will be incorporated into the people of God and receive mercy. 1 Peter 2.10 tells us, those who were not a people will become the people of God. Those who were not a people will become the people of God. Those who had not received mercy will, re will receive mercy. Christian, is this your story? This is your story. We don't deserve mercy. We don't deserve grace. Rather, we deserve the wrath and the curse of God. We were exiles, friends. We were strangers to God's promise. In the Commonwealth of Israel, we're strangers to all that, but God, who is rich in mercy, has loved us and he's united us to Christ and grafted us in and made us part of the people of God. God's enemies are both destroyed and yet rescued by his grace. Now, when we look at verses 11 to 17, we, we look out into a distant future. Here the theme of military conflict continues along with the defeat of God's enemies. This time the, the imagery focuses on God himself who is the primary combatant. 
In these verses, God is the warrior God. In verse 14 it says, Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. God the warrior prosecutes his conflict with sin and Satan, with supernatural forces rather than human forces. What we need to be sure of, friends, is the role of God's people in the victory of the Lord. The point is God's people are both conquerors and they're also jewels in his crown. Looking at verses 11 to 13, it says, As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you, for I have been due to my bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made you like a sword of a mighty man. And, of course, Greece is the power that's going to conquer this region. It's mentioned here years before it does it, friends. That should excite us. Nation after nation, but here God's people are not overcome by the might and the posturing of any world superpower. Instead, they overcome. And they overcome in the warfare of God. His people become his instruments. Look at the text again. He bends Judah. Now Judah, of course, is the old southern Hebrew kingdom. Israel was the northern ten uh, tribes and Judah and Benjamin was the southern kingdom. Like a bow and Ephraim, representing the old northern kingdom, he makes his arrows. When the Lord marches forth, the weapons of his warfare are his own people. Here's an important corrective to passivity. Are you passive? Are you indifferent in your Christian life? In thinking that you can be a passenger in the church of Jesus Christ. God works sovereignly and omnipotently. The Lord reigns and he does whatever he pleases. And yet, yet, he is pleased to work through his people and to use his people. The cosmic warfare between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness rages all around us every day, whether we're aware of it or not. And we need to realise that we're not civilian bystanders that are caught up in the conflict. We are the combatants of the Lord's army, in the Lord's army. Certainly the weapons of our warfare are not physical or flesh. They are spiritual. They have divine power for destroying strongholds. And that's why uh, Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Friends, there's a war on. Are you engaged on the front line? Or have you signed a truce? You're God's instruments. You're combatants in the Lord's army, in the spiritual conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. 
between the reign of grace and the darkness, the wicked darkness of this world. So Zechariah encourages the, these returned exiles with a bold declaration that one day they will share in the victory of God. God is going to triumph and he's going to use them to do it. They're going to participate in his victory. They will be conquerors along with their conquering God. But more than that, he says, they will be to him like jewels of a crown. Jewels of a crown. Verse 16, it says, The Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people, for they shall be like jewels of a crown. When God saves his people, they become to him like jewels of a crown. What is a jewel and a crown? Well, they are precious. They're valuable. They're beautiful. They are the best. You've got the best diamonds and the best emeralds and rubies and whatever else. It's not that we become like diamonds, friends, that he's got to have. It's rather that we come to display and to manifest God's majesty. God's majesty. And Zechariah says, for they shall be like the jewels of a crown, lifted like a banner over the land. For how great is its goodness and how great its beauty. The church displays God's glory and makes his greatness known. One day God's enemies will be no more and those who were once enemies will be rescued. God's people are both conquerors and a jewel. And the question that Zechariah 9 raises for us, how can it be that both war and peace, both wrath and grace, both condemnation and consolation, how can these positive and negative themes sit together so very comfortably? War and peace, wrath and grace, condemnation and consolation. Well, the answer is bound up in the middle of this chapter in verses 9 to 10. Verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. A colt, the fowl of a donkey. The first eight verses ring with this theme of military conquest which lead us to anticipate the words of verse 14. Then the Lord will be seen over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. This theme of conquest and this picture of the warrior God sit together so very well. But Zechariah doesn't immediately go there. Instead, in verse 9, he goes to Zion's king. Zion's king is just and having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey. It's an image of peace, not war, of peacetime rule, not wartime mobilisation. Only in the gospel records of the life of Jesus do we understand how all this fits together. 
Matthew 21, that was read earlier by Chris and John 12, are the gospel accounts of the triumphant entry when Jesus rides on a donkey and he enters the gates of Jerusalem and there he's proclaimed the son of David by the crowds with loud hosannas. And the Lord Jesus, he takes up Zachariah's language in verse 11 and sitting at the Passover table. What does he say on the night when he was betrayed? He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. It was on the basis of the blood of the covenant that Zechariah said that the warrior God would save his people and use them in his service. And, and then we know the story, of course, Jesus was nailed to the cross and on his forehead they set a crown of thorns and over his head they made this declaration, the king of the Jews. And yet the crown and the sign proclaim much more than they ever knew. At the cross, the blood of the covenant was shed by shed for sinners to by um, well it was shed by sinners by the Romans and those who conspired against him to save sinners like you and I. There, at the cross, Jesus dethroned the rulers and the authorities. And there he knocked down the supernatural powers of this present dark world in those mysterious heavenly places. In Jesus, the tension of the text, wrath and mercy, judgment and grace, justice and deliverance, celebration and conquest is finally resolved. And these positive and negative tensions, all to come, they all come together at Calvary, at Calvary. In him, wrath and mercy come together with judgment and grace. For Jesus is the one who embodies humility, as Philippians 2 verse 8 reminds us. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And Jesus is the one who conquers the world. And when he conquers the world, he defeats death. And he defeated death by his resurrection. You see, Jesus wins, friends. Jesus has won. He rules and he reigns. And he's made his conquest of the world and he is the victor and he has triumphed by the cross. As we close, this means we have two things to consider, friends. Firstly, if you're not a Christian now, then Zechariah, who has been telling us about coming judgment, also has told us about the offer of mercy. He's told us about a way of escape. He's told us about deliverance and rescue. You see, <coughs> we find deliverance and rescue by having faith in the coming king, the one who has already come in Jesus, by having faith in the one who died at Calvary for sinners, who shed his blood to make you his. 
So trust in Christ. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to be your personal saviour and Lord. Secondly, if we are Christians, Zechariah is calling us to participate in the Lord's conquest of the nations. Verses 9 to 10, we learn the manner of the conquest. It's similar to the Saviour's conquest. How did he win the victory? How did Christ win the victory? How did he triumph over the rulers and authorities and principalities and powers? Well, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of, of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name over every other name that at his name every knee should bow on earth and under the earth and in the sea and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus wins, Jesus reigns, Jesus triumphs. How? By taking on the posture of a servant and giving himself for others. How do we participate in his victory and in, the great, and in this great conquest of the Saviour? We take on the posture of a servant, just like Jesus did, by embracing humility and giving ourselves to others and for others, by being selfless, by, by our selfless sacrifice, by loving sacrifice and by gospel witness of the crucified Christ. The Lord Jesus will use his people as his weapons. But friends, each of those weapons is cross-shaped. And it's not a sword, it's the cross. Our lives are to bear the imprint of the likeness to our Saviour who gave himself up for us. Therefore, we are to go and give ourselves for the benefit of others. Amen. Would you pray with me? Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the coming of the King. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his victory over darkness, over death at the cross. Lord, help us to bear that in mind. And Lord, we pray that you'll encourage us all to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And those of us who believe, Lord, we pray that you will also make us your instruments in the battle ahead. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to do those things that you would have us do for the advancement of your kingdom till you come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. More messages of hope at Essendon Presbyterian Church. .org.au or wherever you get your podcasts from.